0: Go to Psalm 23. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go with me to a really, really familiar passage of Scripture. My guess is that maybe in Sunday school or Bible school somewhere in the past, some good and godly teacher had you memorize this, even as a child. This 23rd Psalm. Is that right? Anybody Is that? Anybody's and and probably kept with you for for uh, for your lifetime. My guess is that even a lot of people who um, who don't uh, read the scriptures regularly, if we started reciting the 23rd Psalm, could at least <coughs> recite the Lord is my shepherd. I, you know, I shall not want. Um, now, I, I want to give you some background on that. Um, you, you've, heard, um, you've heard the adage about war being hell. War is a terrible thing. I want to give you some figures just to consider here on American casualties, American deaths in, in wars uh, that this country has fought in. In the Gulf War, okay, so that's the, now we gotta call it the first Gulf War, 258 deaths by Americans in the first Gulf War. In the Iran-Afghanistan War, the one that we're, you could argue we're still involved in, 6,626 deaths uh, thus far. Now, we're going to go back in time now. The Revolutionary War, 25,000 Americans lost their lives in the Revolutionary War. I've been reading a lot about the Revolutionary War lately, so that's intriguing to me. The war that I kind of lived through as a teenager uh, with my draft card in my wallet, the Vietnam War, 58,209 casualties on that wall. Deaths. The war that they called the War to End All Wars, or the Great War, World War I, 116,516 men and women died in the war, part of the war effort. The other World War, World War II, 405,399 deaths. But the truth is, until until the Vietnam War, all of the wars that the Americans had fought and lost men and women in combined didn't equal the loss of life in the American Civil War. 620,000 men and women died. Some people believe that the total might be as high as 850,000. Deaths by American against American in the Civil War. Now, the truth is, in some of my study for this week, um, some believe that Psalm 23, or some scholars will talk about, that the 23rd Psalm was not all that popular until after uh, the Civil War in this country. It became really popular in, in post-Civil War America. Uh, some of that, they think, was sparked by... The preaching and kind of prose poetry of Henry Ward Beecher, who was preaching in in New York at that time. He, if you ever, if you want to get some inspiring stuff about the twenty-third Psalm, just Google Henry Ward Beecher and Psalm twenty-three. Um, really, some of the things he wrote about it are, are beautiful and very poetic. So that tragic loss of life in this country in that war, plus. The economic panics that occurred about eight years later and then then 10 years or 20 years after that bolstered the popularity of Psalm 23 to the normal run-of-the-mill person. The general public gravitated toward the lines about the shadow of death and um, dwelling in the house of the Lord forever for comfort. The Psalm became a secular icon, not just a religious icon. And it was finalized, and you and I know this still happens. It was finalized when funeral homes began to print the 23rd Psalm on the back of an obituary funeral folder that they would pass out at funerals, okay? Isn't it interesting that really when you and I look at the 23rd Psalm, there are other psalms that that really outstretched it in popularity at least until basically the 20th century. But you and I know it to be probably the favorite of all the Psalms, and we're going to study it today. So um, I'll, I'll have you turn there with me because we're going to take some some of the words apart. But um, but you may know it by memory. Now, speaking of knowing things by memory, um, we have quote. I forgot to have us quote First John four nineteen in this series about love. Okay, so we're going to do that right now. Do you remember how it goes? It's just like seven words. Okay. Um, You ready? We're gonna quote the reference before and after. Here we go. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. Wanna do it one more time? Now that you're warmed up, let's do it one more time. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Okay, now this is no more apparent anywhere than in what you and I find in the 23rd Psalm. Shepherding was a common occupation in the Bible and in biblical times, even in New Testament times. Um, it shouldn't surprise us then that the Bible has just scores of references to sheep and shepherds. Sheep were completely dependent on their shepherd and uh, it made that job of shepherding what we would call a 24-7 job. Now, if you remember, one of the places where you can kind of think about that is on the night of the birth Of the Messiah in Bethlehem, you remember the shepherds were guarding their flocks by night. They had a night job. Guess what? It was followed by a day job as well. Okay, so they they, uh, it was kind of a full time job. Um, uh, Before, um, uh, it's interesting here. Shepherds became figurative or metaphorical of. Of uh, kind of the shepherds of God's people, for instance, kings and leaders. The Old Testament um, describes God himself as a shepherd of Israel, but then we meet uh, kings like David and leaders like Moses who are called the shepherds of God's people as well. We'll talk a little more about David today. By the time we get to the New Testament, you will recognize I read a book years ago that was really a pretty good read entitled Jesus CEO. Maybe some of you read it. It's a good read. But interestingly, I don't find anywhere in red in my New Testament where Jesus calls himself, I am the good, good CEO. He, I don't read any place where he says, I am the good leader. He says, I am the good shepherd in John 10. Isn't it interesting? With all, of all the metaphors that he had at his disposal, that's the one he chose to identify with. So he calls himself the great shepherd of the sheep in that same chapter, and he's called that over in Hebrews. Now, so our approach today to the book of Psalms or the Psalm 23 is going to involve this thought of Jesus not only as our God, not only as our shepherd, but as our host. We're going to take Uh, the first uh, three or four verses and talk about God as our shepherd. And we'll take the last couple of verses and talk about God as a host uh, of the flock. Now, Steve Blair, you told me that you had a hard day yesterday. You're not sure you can get through this, but, but I think you probably can. Would you take a minute and read the first very familiar four verses
1: of Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If I can get you to hang on to that, there
0: are three other psalmic portions I want you to go to right after this in just a minute, okay? Can we do that? Right now, if you look at the beginning of Psalm 23, there is what sometimes technically is known biblically as a superscript. See above the psalm. If you're looking at okay, if you're looking at a, at a computer Bible, okay, it may be listed as verse zero. Anybody got that going on? I've just found lately. I'll look, and it'll have if there's a superscript in there, some description. It'll it'll talk about that being verse zero. Anybody see that anywhere? Okay, maybe, maybe I'm just the got the weird Bible. Does that do that in your Bible, Ellie? Because I know uh, you don't even have it with you today. Oh, it's, it's your oh your bodyguard's got it. Okay, all right. Now, so in that superscript or that that preamble, whatever you want to call it, it identifies who the writer is. Who is it? They. A lot of debate over when David wrote this. Okay, I've got, I've got people in my life and when I've talked about it that make a really strong case for him having written this when he was a boy, a shepherd boy. I've got other people that say, no, it's when he, was in, in, when he was a king and he was looking back on his life as a shepherd boy. There are others who think somewhere in between there as he was struggling to gain the kingship and running from King Saul. But anyway... The idea here, it's pretty well universally attributed to David. Um, He was a shepherd as a boy. Now, he is the shepherd of God's people. Steve, um, would you go to 78, 78, Psalm 78, and I want you to read verse 70 and 71
1: out loud to us, will you? He chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. Okay,
0: now you catch that? It's the idea that the shepherd, that this boy shepherd is now the shepherd of God's people. Um, I, I love that. Now let's look at a couple of other places. Steve, if you go on to 79, read 79 13, and read 79:13, then I'll have you jump over to 95:7. We'll just read both those together. These are going to talk about God's shepherding over His people. Okay, so we're um, go on with us There, 78. I mean, sorry, 79:13.
1: Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise.
0: We are identified as the sheep of God's pasture. Several times, but this is one of those clear places. Now, 95, verse 7.
1: For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Okay. The flock under his
0: care. Catch that? So we're part of God's flock. David, who was once a shepherd of sheep, is now a shepherd of sheep. The nation as king, as this is being written, and he acknowledges, this shepherd king acknowledges here that he also has a shepherd. Okay? I think that's wonderful. And when he says here, I shall not want, that is um, kind of a roundabout way of saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's a roundabout way of saying, I'm his sheep. Now this would have been, if he wrote it while he was king, this would have been uh, fairly startling and endearing of the people to read when they came to temple. To read the words of David acknowledging that our great shepherd, and he was the great shepherd of Israel, our great shepherd also has a shepherd whom he follows. Isn't it wonderful by the way here at this place that we can say we are God's sheep and we're Marty's sheep too. And we know that Marty follows the same shepherd that we follow. That's a really grand thing to be able to acknowledge. The people who were led by David could say our king shepherds us well. And one of the reasons he shepherds us well is because he also follows a shepherd, the Lord God. Pretty important to me, I don't know about to you, but pretty important that that idea that the Lord is my shepherd. And he says, I shall not want. I'm his sheep. So where he is, uh, there's really no lack. Okay, look at verse 2. Talks about Uh, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still water. So the idea here is that a good shepherd provides for his flock, especially in terms of food and water, food and water. Now, uh, one of the things that you read about that shepherds are very skillful at uh, is finding good pasture land that has not already been overgrazed. And that was a real trick in the arid land in which they lived in Palestine or Israel. Not a place where, um, Dan, where you, you and I were talking about grass earlier today. Not a, not a whole lot of places around that had abundant stores of grass. They had to find that. And it's interesting, they could go to a place where they'd been before and leading all these woolly sheep to it, and might realize that this place has already been overgrazed. I'm going to have to take them somewhere else. So they became really skillful at finding places for them to eat. So they provided food for them, certainly, and they provided um, water for them. Um, uh, Kind of leads me beside still waters. The idea here is that they're providing food and water adequate for the flocks. Now, it's kind of beautiful. Go with me to Isaiah 40, verse 11. It's not too far to your right. Isaiah 40, verse 11. This is a, a really outstanding passage, uh, chapter of Scripture. It's got a lot of predictive stuff in it. But look what it says about the shepherd, the shepherd here. Like a shepherd, uh, verse 11, Isaiah 40, verse 11 like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Those are beautiful metaphors here, talking about God's relationship with us. Now, uh, let's talk for a minute about water here, uh, he leaves me beside the still waters. My understanding is that one of the reasons he talks about still waters here is because, uh, and by the way, if you're an OSU fan, this is not talking about that. Okay, where's, where's Cl- Cliff? Cl- Cl- Cliff, uh-uh. It's not talking about Payne County here. God promise you, okay? Although that's a good place to be led to. All right, okay? Um, so if you're an OSU fan, you can you can use this, but you don't really have a leg to stand on Larry I'm sorry, okay leaves me to uh, huh you uh, I know you love Payne county you you was born there weren't you okay born there yeah that's what they say in Payne county okay so but if if the idea of stillwater is this a couple of thoughts okay first of all, it could be that if if he if the shepherd led them to a flowing stream somewhere that that was good six months ago, when I get there today, it may be all dried up really common in that area of the world to come to a dry, completely toasty dry riverbed well six months ago i I uh watered my sheep here i I gave them rest here can't do that today. So now I gotta lead them somewhere else. It could be that, or it could be in that area, anytime there were rains, like we've had certainly in the last week or so. Flooding was really common. So it may be that I go to a place that's that's kind of flowing and look some babbling brook somewhere, and all of a sudden I'm in the middle of a flood. So the shepherd knew that still waters were the best option for the flock, and it was there pasturing and nearby a place where there was adequate and appropriate water that he could say to them, okay, lie down. That's a good image for you and me of what the Lord does for us. Now, let's go one more verse. It begins with the thought, he restores my soul. Anybody get a different word there than restores? If Refresh. Refreshes. I thought there was another word out there. And that's a good word too. Restores, refreshes. If you're reading a King James, it might say, he restoreth my soul. Now, here's my question. Think about it for a minute. What is it that restores... Or refreshes your soul. What is it? Time spent with God. I'm sorry? Time spent with God. Your time spent with God really refreshes your soul. That's, that's good, Cindy, and, and really common, right? Karen, I see you nodding your head. Okay. Now, it may be something a little more earthy, and that's okay. Because we all have to have some way to restore our soul. Maybe for you, I was with a consultant years ago, and uh, it's when my kids were still at home, and he he said to me, you may need to start, start stopping somewhere on your way from here to home and having a cup of coffee or something, reading the paper. Because you go from leading here to leading there, and there's no buffer. And so in those days... Um, That was when Starbucks was first getting going. Maybe that stop helps restore your soul. But I want you to know, it's not something, you know, that, that comes out of Seattle, Washington, that's restoring your soul. It's not a $5 cup of coffee that's restoring your soul. It's the recharge, Cindy, that comes from reconnecting with God. What restores your soul? Anybody else got a thought? You know, David, and you're right, nature a lot restores some people's soul. Skip, I haven't been there in a while, but there were lots of falls where I would land at you guys' place in Colorado just because I needed a recharge. And it was interesting, maybe it's because I was a couple thousand feet closer to God, I don't know, but how he always met me there. And it was a great rest time. So maybe it's the ocean for you, maybe it's the mountains for you, maybe... Somewhere in nature. The idea is God will restore your soul if you let him. I've, I've gone through a pattern over the last couple of months where Saturdays have become really a Sabbath to me, and I've worked it as hard as I can to, to keep it remaining as a Sabbath. I get up a couple hours before Rhonda. I've been reading that whole time, uh, just kind of recharging, not talking to anybody. I've got, I've got my Bible, a couple other books that I'm reading, and um, a cup of coffee. I don't check, well, don't tell on me. I don't check email on Saturday. In fact, it's got me in trouble a couple times because I don't look at the email on Saturday. Because if I do, my Sabbath is over. Typically, okay? So that's why I've got 95 extra, you know, by the time I get to Monday. But, okay. So it's interesting to me that he will restore my soul and he wants to. Now, it, it says here one of the things we got to deal with is um, that sheep have a tendency to act as a group. That what one does, the rest of them tend to do. I read a story this week about a herd of sheep um, that had a tendency to follow their leader. And uh, in 2005, nearly 1,500 sheep jumped off a cliff the uh, shepherds lost 450 of them. They jumped off a cliff when they blindly followed the foolish path of a dominant member of the flock. All the while, their Turkish shepherds, their usual leaders, were away at breakfast. You know, got them in a nice place. They figured they're going to be okay. Lay down. You guys be good. We're going to go off and eat breakfast. By the time they got back, 1,500 of them had wandered over a cliff. 450 of them died. Sheep have a tendency to go where they want to go unless, a sh- unless they're following a shepherd here. There's words here that are um, that are really important. And I want you to put in your blank here the word heeding, H-E-E-D-I-N-G. We can never be led astray while we're heeding his voice. You've heard Jesus say in, in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I, I need to make sure I understand and recognize his voice. But the idea here is that as long as I'm listening and heeding his voice, I'm not going to be led astray. There are two words that are used here, and they're used also, they're used in 31.3 and they're used in Exodus 15. Two words that come as kind of uh, in tandem here, two or three times in Scripture. Lead and guide. The shepherd, if you'll heed him, will lead and guide you. But we have to heed his voice. Now, verse four that Steve read for us a little bit ago is really, really important and very, very familiar to us. Um, It's the idea, we get this idea of the valley of the shadow of death. Um, Let me just read it one more time because it's, It's translated uh, this way with a footnote. Even though, verse 4, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, if you're reading another translation, it may say the valley of deep darkness. Does anybody have that? The valley of deep darkness. Some of the newer translations have that. Uh, what's interesting to me, even as I read the New American Standard, it's got a note there, pointing me back and says, in some manuscripts, Valley of Deep Darkness. It's the idea of the shepherd leading his flock to a place that's pretty scary, pretty dangerous. But even in a dangerous place, and this could be taken either physically or spiritually, in a even in a dangerous place, as long as I'm heeding and following the shepherd, I'm okay. I'm okay. Now, um, it mentions two things that the shepherd uses there that are kind of important to understand. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. For years, I thought these two were the same thing. How about you? You know, in old old, uh, King James English, thy rod and thy staff they comfort me, right? Well, honestly, a rod is something that they wore on a belt, typically, um, around their waist, uh, so that it would be at ready access. It was a, a two-foot to four-foot club, okay? Not to be used on the sheep, but to be used on a, on a predator of the sheep or on an enemy of the sheep. Now, how does that make you feel? It actually makes me feel pretty comfortable. Um, if, um, if somebody's threatening me, I want to be with Charles Berryhill because I know he is armed most of the time. Bill P. is armed most of the time. If somebody is threatening me, I want to be with a guy who's armed, armed or a girl who's armed. All right? I want you to have a rod. My dad, when I was a kid, we uh, would travel 60 miles to Paul's Valley to go to, go to church every Sunday. And um, we'd usually get there a little bit early because my folks were early everywhere they ever went. And uh, um, you know, if you weren't there about 30 minutes early, you were late. But we'd stop to get a donut somewhere in Paul's Valley and, and, uh, uh, and on the way down. And, and my dad would always say to me, some cop would walk in and he'd have a big gun on his side and dad would say, why don't you go ask him if you could snap his pistol? I never did that Isn't it true that we want a shepherd with a rod? I'm happy that my God has got the devil's number. I'm happy that when I read the end of the book, I know who wins. But it also mentions a staff. And and typically, when you and I think of a staff, we might think of just a, a long stick that is used, but typically a shepherd's staff is crooked, has a crook on the end of it. You ever thought about that? That crook plays an actually a really important role. That crook is um, used for correction sometimes. In other words, if a sheep is going the wrong way, getting ready to lose footing, he might use it to get back over here. Or if I'm stuck in a spot, he uses the crook end to gently lift me out of it. Think about it. If it was just a straight stick, it wouldn't do that. But the crook, he can kind of you know, get it around my belly and lead me back up where I need to be gently. Can I? Do you know something? I can't tell you how many times the shepherd's crook has saved my spiritual life. He's lifted me out. No? Aren't you glad that experience this? Now, there's something that happens in verse four that I just don't want us to miss. In the Hebrew language, this chapter, okay? It's only what? Six verses long. In the Hebrew language, uh, this chapter in fact, I want you to look right there at verse four right now, okay. In the Hebrews, Hebrew language in which it was written, originally written, there are 50 words in the psalm. 50 words in Psalm 23. The, the 26th word is four. F-O-R. Okay? The 26th word is four. It's so right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of the, of the chapter, the psalmist David, the king, the shepherd king changes from talking about the Lord, he, okay, to you. Look, look, at, look at your passage. When I was looking at it this morning, it almost falls in the middle of, on this Bible I'm using this morning. It's in two different pages. But if I'm looking at all one page, the word for is just almost in the middle of, of, of even our English Bibles, even though it's many more words in English. But the word for comes right in the middle. And after that, he no longer calls God he. He talks about him in the third person. He talks about him in first person, you, or second person, you. It becomes really, really personal. And notice this, what happens in verse four. It, it's very important for me to catch this because he says, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Not even he is with me. And for the rest of the psalm, it's very personal. What you and I need to know is that this personal relationship that I have with God lets me say with confidence, you know what? I can go whatever storm I'm going through in my life, even if it's the valley of the shadow of death. Because, Lord, you're with me. It's a big deal. It's a really, really big deal. Let's read verse 5 and 6, okay? Cindy, would you mind to read those to us? You prepare, a table
1: before me. you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.
0: I'll have lunch today with a dear friend. We, we lunch together most Sundays. Um, and when Bill and I talk about my mother he would talk about the first time I ever invited him home with me to mom's house for lunch on Sunday after mom and dad had been at church for 4 or 5 hours like I had been at church for 4 or 5 hours I was on staff here and we got home to their place in Midwest City and it was my little family of 4 Bill and my mom and dad and mom starts carting out all this stuff for the table and Bill looks at me and says, "Who else is coming?" And he begins to count the number of dishes. There were like twelve different things. She really was—if if anybody I've ever known had the gift of hospitality, it was her. I, I remember one time I was traveling with um, a, a fellow pastor, whose whose who's in-laws were in. The Panhandle of Oklahoma, and we came out both of us after choir rehearsals. We left one Wednesday night, loaded up in my van, and his two kids, my two kids, and the four of us, all drove to Oklahoma overnight and We got to my mom 's place. He was going to take my van onto the Panhandle to Texoma somewhere up there and uh, and we got to mom 's house at like five o'clock in the morning, and in like ten minutes, she had the table spread. I, how do you do that coming from a dead sleep? I, the only way I know is that she had the gift of hospitality. I want you to look at this passage from number five, verse five. The banquet table is spread. We're going to change the metaphor here from a shepherd to a host. And the idea is that, that a table has been prepared. And an anointing is going to take place. Now, the word anointing here is talking about, David is probably a little bit reminiscent of, of back in the, in 1 Samuel, when he was anointed as king over Israel. And what happened was uh, Samuel, who was then kind of the judge and leader over the land, had um, had anointed King Saul, Who and that didn't go all that well. And that was time for a new king. And David is anointed. And literally, it's a, the scriptures say in the middle of middle of 1 Samuel, the scriptures say that Samuel took his horn of oil and poured it over David's head. Thou, you have anointed my head with oil. Here, there's an anointing that takes place. Now, I want to tell you about this. Now, in their region, if I came in from a hot, dusty travel, they might put on my head Scented oil, and that was to be refreshing. By the way, don't do that. If I come to your house, don't do that to me. That, I don't really get that. But to them, that was refreshing, okay? I guess water was scarce. I'd rather have a bath, all right? But it also bears, every time oil is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's talking often about the Spirit of God. You prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head. You've given me the spirit. Don't you know that that continual presence of the spirit was refreshing to him? And the result was complete satisfaction here. Complete satisfaction. My cup runs over. I put several verses in there that I I want you you to look at on your own time. But go to 66.12. Psalm 66.12. You made men right over our heads. We went through the fire and through the water. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. Same expression my cup overflows is right there, sixty-six, twelve, a place of abundance. That's where he leads me. The banquet table is spread. Can I say something to you? You've got an opportunity today that's not, we don't get often enough probably. In our sanctuary today or in the venue, the banquet table will be spread you will be offered Holy Communion today. Consider that your invitation to the tale. God has paid for it with the death and broken body of his son. Now, the very last verse, and we'll finish. The rest of God, his rest in my life is assured by the word used here in verse six, surely. I can take it to the bank. All right. And it says, surely, goodness. And my Bible says loving kindness. Your Bible might say mercy. Your Bible might say love. All of those words are appropriate. In the NIV, it probably says love. In the King James, it might say mercy. In New American Standard, it's going to say loving kindness. What picturesque language. His loving kindness will follow after me all the days of my life. My relationship with him reminds me of how loving and kind he is to me, and it's given to me surely. And he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A lot of debate over what that means, whether it means uh, the house of the Lord in David's day was a reference to the temple. And David loved to go to the temple. And so could this be that it's David saying, I want to return to the temple. But it also refers to here, um, heaven. So whether it's talking about a return to the temple, whether it's talking about some future day where I'm going to live forever in the house of God in, in heaven. Don't miss the point. Don't get so confused over which that's talking about that you miss the point. The point is, this is a place where you want to go to. This is a place that he's pretty excited about being. And it's the place, wherever it is, it's the place where God is. And it's where I want to be. The place where I want to be. Now, so here's the point. As shepherd, okay, we use these shepherd and host metaphors in this today As shepherd, the Father provides for us. The banquet table is spread. My cup overflows. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. As my shepherd, God always provides for me. And it may be that you're going through a particular time where you feel like provision is kind of waning. In terms of dollars and cents or in terms of health, whatever. Remember that God provides for you, even in those moments. Second, as my host, he makes me desirous of his presence. I want to be where he is. I don't care where that is. I just want to be where he is. Sometimes it means I'm going to be on the front lines of some kind of work, activity, war, war. I just want to be where he is. As my host, he makes me want to be with him. Now, here's my question. Will you walk in his path? Even when I veer off course, he's going to use the crook end of that staff to bring me right, right again. And he might whack me a little bit on the backside with it. It's like, would you stay up here? Will you walk in his path? Living eternally in his presence is at stake here. And that's where I want to be. I think it's where you want to be. Will you decide today, this moment, this day, this week, this month, this year, your life, to follow his path? Even when you don't know the way when it's not marked out clearly for you, I can promise you this. He knows the way for you. Even in that place, that uh, verse four, valley of deepest darkness, he knows the way through, a dangerous place. If you will follow him, he will lead. And you, like David, can dwell with him. Here and there. That's where I want to be.